Pambana Dikumusa Utae Kumabwenzi Latu Yesu Atikonda Konda fe Tipunzite Buye Yesu Tikondane Nanutu Tisaiwalire Kose Wenzila tu In terms of our vision, uh, the vision of the School of Divinity is to be a center of excellence for Reformed Biblical scholarship, devotion, and teaching, impacting Africa with the gospel of Christ and a God-centered worldview. And really that, that encapsulates and undergirds everything that we're about. We want to be very clear about both academic excellence and evangelistic fervor. We want to be clear about the about uniting the, the head, the hands, and the heart. That's the vision of ACU as a whole, and it is most assuredly the vision of the School of Divinity. The, the other thing that's important is that we view what we do in the School of Divinity as part of ACU. That's why we chose to be School of Divinity as opposed to a seminary. And everybody keeps using the term seminary, seminary, seminary. And when we started, that's what we talked about. But a seminary is a standalone institution. A School of Divinity is part of the broader university. So we're not separate from ACU. We're not other than ACU. Um, we are an arm of ACU. We are intricately we are intricately involved and ingrained in the ethos of ACU. And that's important from two perspectives. Number one, it's important because when you talk about universities going adrift, there are a couple of things that happen that lead to that. One is you separate the university from the church. When you look at the great universities and the, the Harvards of the world and Princetons of the world, the first step in their theological moral decline is that you divorce their work from the church. And you divorce it from the accountability of the church and you divorce it from the influence of the church. The second thing you do is you divorce the school of divinity from the broader university. And so now all of a sudden, you, you have this bifurcated view 
of education. And, and we think that, you know, uh, the academic pursuits, we think things like, you know, business and agriculture, or the sciences or whatever, is over here. And the matter of theology and theological education belongs over here, which facilitates that downward decline of the university over and against the school of divinity or the seminary. And because they're both divorced from the church, eventually the decline happens in both places. And that is almost universally true of early theological institutions. When you look, for example, at the Ivy Leagues, um, the universities are completely removed from and antagonistic toward the things of God. And the seminaries or schools of divinity are completely awash with pragmatism, postmodernism, and with heresy. Um, so it's very important to us for the sake of the university and for the sake of the school of divinity that we maintain that relationship and that both maintain our relationship with the church. So ACU is a ministry of the Reformed Baptist Churches of Zambia. Uh, the School of Divinity is an integral part of the ministry of ACU. Yeah. 
nati fera, fera e fe. Koma Yesu, malo mwatu, anabachi kidwatu. Anamnyoza, pansi, pano, wenzi lao. Shall we take our seats? Thank you. Welcome to our second session. And this section, this session will be taken by uh, our main speaker, 
not our main speaker, but our speaker for this morning. That one is Bode uh, Bokam. So we'll be looking at uh, the book of uh, Revelations. So I'll ask that uh, we stand and sing hymn number 240 in our grace supplement. Shall we all stand and sing hymn number 240? Day after, I'll pray, and then we invite the preacher to come forward. Yeah. 
Father, who art in heaven, thank you once again that indeed you were with us in the morning when you were looking at uh, a topic that was crucial in our life, the love that our Lord and Savior showed us when he died on the cross. Now, Lord, we also want to thank you for the manner in which you went before us as we were taking our steps. Lord, yet again, you have called us uh, to come before you so that we might Gain from the word, and that your word might manifest in our lives, so that we can be uh, boosted to go out there and uh, preach your word. Now, Lord, as we want to commit uh, your man servant who is before us, that indeed, Lord, as he labors to teach us your word, uh, open our hearts, open our ears, and the eyes of, of, of the Spirit, that we may discern that which you have set forth for us. Oh Lord, we want to ask for the Holy Spirit to be in our midst, that it should convict each one of us. That indeed, Lord, we we'll play part in, in, in your worship, most specifically that uh, each one of us will have a task, just like the way we have sung in the song, that the cross uh, gives us strength to go out there and proclaim your word. Now we want to ask as we start our program that you start with us, and end with us, we ask for these things through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. Okay, brethren, I would like to invite our preacher to come forward so that he takes uh, the points. Thank you. Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to the last book in the Bible. And before we begin, whenever I um, address this topic in this book, I always want to make sure that you go away with at least 
one important theological truth that you can hold on to. Okay? So I'll give you that up front. Very important theological truth that you can hold on to. Amen? You ready? The book of Revelation has no S at the end of it. There's only one revelation. Not two, not many. It's the revelation. It's not revelations. It's the revelation. Six people have asked me today, when they say they saw me, if I was handling revelations. And uh, they looked real funny when I said no. Um, but there's no S. Now, I say that, and let me tell you a funny story. I was uh, at a uh, seminar where I was dealing with this book and introducing this book. And uh, I said that just like I always do. And then right after I said it, I said, okay, let's open to Revelations. Um, so we all do it. All right. Uh, but let's, let's open uh, to Revelation 1. Let's look at the introduction here. Let's look at those first couple of verses here. Key to understanding this. And it reads, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Amen. There's an important question that we have to ask when we deal with this book. And the question is, can you understand Revelation? It's an important question. Um, and a lot of people would answer that in the negative. A lot of people would say, no, it's, it's really not a book that you can understand. It's an intimidating book. Um, I, I learned that the hard way. Um, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't grow up in church. I never heard the gospel until I went to university. Those of you who know me, you know that. And so I I was a new believer and um, I was in college and some teammates of mine, I was playing uh, football in the U.S., the American kind, not the... Um, and uh, some some teammates of mine bought me a Bible and I was so excited. And so I, I, I got this Bible, and for some reason, I got into my head that it would be a good idea to find out how it all ends. So the first thing I read in the Bible was Revelation. And I remember thinking, if the rest of the Bible is like this, I'm sunk, right? Um, I, it was a bad idea. I do not recommend it to anyone. Um, I generally tell people it doesn't really matter where you start reading the Bible, just start reading. Uh, I had to amend that. It doesn't really matter where you start reading the Bible, just start reading. As long as you don't start in Revelation, right? You, you, you don't want to do that. Um, but listen to this from Vern Poitras. 
Can you understand the book of Revelation? Yes, you can. You can summarize its message in one sentence. God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. Read it with this main point in mind and you will understand. You will not necessarily understand every detail, neither do I. But it is not necessary to understand every detail in order to profit spiritually. That's an important word. Okay, You can understand this book and you can summarize it in that one phrase. God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. That's the message of Revelation. God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. We have hope because of that truth. The great irony is that the book of Revelation scares people when in fact, when you understand it properly, it was written to do the exact opposite. The book of Revelation was meant to be encouraging. And I would argue that when you understand Revelation rightly, it is the most encouraging book in all of the Bible. Some of you are looking at me with that look. <laughs> Saying, brother, I, I read it before and I, I don't know what you're talking about because I got confusion. I got a bunch of stuff, but encouragement was not there. Well, hopefully by the end of our time together, there will be more encouragement there. Kim Riddlebarger puts it this way. In many ways, Revelation is the most practical book in the entire New Testament since it is specifically written to Christians who live in the post-apostolic age. This means that the symbols and visions we find here are meant for us. Therefore, we must make every effort to interpret them correctly and apply them to our present context. Again, that's very important. And many Christians don't believe that. Because many Christians believe that the book of Revelation, they, they believe that God gave us the, the Bible, he gave us the New Testament, and he gave us the New Testament for all Christians in, in all ages um, and in all contexts, regardless of who or where you are, except one book. And, and we believe that the book of Revelation is not for all Christians in all ages. The book of Revelation is only for Christians in, 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 the, in that latter in time age right only those christians when all of this stuff begins to unfold only they will be able to read understand and apply and benefit from the book of revelation but all of the christians between that time um are just sort of you know we're, we're just resigned to look at it and to read it and to try to figure out you know some of the things that may be coming and maybe see a thing or two here or there but for the most part um it won't be a blessing to us it will only be a blessing to that last generation of christians um nothing could be further from the truth a survey was taken in a preaching magazine about the book that people most wanted to hear preached or to have preached through in church. And by far, the book that people said they would most want to have preached through in church was Revelation. Same uh, magazine polled preachers as to the book 
they would most and least like to preach through. And the book that they would least like to preach through was Revelation. Yes. Um, so, interestingly enough, most people have never heard more than a sermon or two from Revelation, right? A uh, couple of passages that, you know, we, we, we may have had sermons preached from, you know, maybe you've been at a wedding and somebody preached, I was, you know, at a wedding recently and, you know, the sermon was uh, from, from Revelation, right? About the, 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 the marriage of the Lamb, right? And so we'll hear things like that. But the idea that we would get uh, sustained, prolonged, systematic exposition from Revelation. Uh, most Christians never experience that at all. Um, what are our attitudes toward this book? There are a number of common attitudes toward this book. Um, number one is confusion, right? We don't understand it. We can't understand it, right? We're confused. We stay away from it because it's so confusing. Another popular attitude is fear. Fear. We're afraid of the book of Revelation because, again, we believe that it is about this scary, terrible period that is going to come where everything is going to be awful and you, you, we, we, we're afraid of it. Um, another attitude toward it is marginalization. We marginalize the book. We treat it as though it's not as important as other New Testament books. Luther was one who had this attitude. Luther dismissed Revelation as unedifying for the ordinary believer. Unedifying for the ordinary believer. So again, if, if you know, so such a towering theologian as Martin Luther would have this view and attitude toward the book, um, it makes sense that that others would as well. Another view of the book or approach to the book is is to sensationalize it, right? To sensationalize it. Um, every time something happens in the world, people run to Revelation and they start, ah, here it is, right? This is it. Um, you know, I remember when when the Gulf War broke out, you know, in in ninety one, and they were like, "That's you know you know what that is? You know that's Babylon, right? You and you know he, the the armies of the nations they're, they're they're gathering right now, and Battle of Armageddon is getting ready to come, you know, because it has to be you know million man armies, and you know now at this point in history we got million man armies, and now we can have all of those numbers of people gathered up, and this is it, this is it, this is it." Saddam Hussein, he's the Antichrist. By the way, before that, World War II, this is it. This is it. Adolf Hitler, he's the Antichrist, right? And now all of a sudden you got, you got war with Russia and Ukraine, and people are like, oh, this is it. This is it, right? That great strong man in the north, he's rising up, and, and I mean, there he is, and somebody's going to start doing some mathematics with Vladimir Putin's name and come up with 666 somehow, you know, and he's going to be like, once this thing spills over into Europe, then we're going to have it again. Every time something like this happens, 
COVID! <laughs> COVID! I cannot tell you how many emails I got asking me if the vaccine was the mark of the beast. <laughs> Excuse me. I don't have it. <laughs> I have twice, but I don't have it. But again, you know, is, is this is this is is this it? Right? Because if you don't get it, you can't buy or sell, you can't move, you can't this. Ah, this is it. This is it. Right? And all of a sudden you got people literally weeping because of relatives. Weeping because I, I want them to be with me in heaven. And they went and took the mark. <laughs> I just it's just my grandmother and she just she, she took the mark. And again, something else will come up and everyone will run and sensationalize it again. But that's probably the most common approach to the book. And if people generally don't read it and don't believe that they can understand it, and then you have pastors out there who act like they can't understand it and latch on to it and pull stuff from here and from there and put it all together and give you charts and maps and all this kind of stuff and tell you that Adolf Hitler or Saddam Hussein or, you know, Vladimir Putin or, or Donald Trump or whoever, you know, that, that all of a sudden you sit there and you go, who am I to refute it? Right? Why is it difficult though? There's a good question. Why is this book so difficult for us to understand? Number one, because of the type of literature. It's apocalyptic literature. It's highly symbolic literature. Um, apocalyptic literature uh, would have been very familiar to our first century brethren but it is not as familiar to us. There are, some form, there are some forms of literature that just give themselves away, where you know um, how to listen to it. For example, if I were to stand up here and say, once upon a time, what are you getting ready to hear? Anybody? What was that? What kind of story? A fairy tale. Right? If I stand up here and I say, once upon a time, you know you're about to hear a fairy tale. And you know that in a fairy tale, you are going to hear things that are not normal, that are not natural, right? You'll hear about little girls, you know, taking a drink of liquid that makes them really, really small, and you know, and you know, the the, the queen of hearts and off with her head and all this. You 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 know this. And when you hear those things in the story, you don't say, Well, well, that's, that can't happen because you know you're listening to a fairy tale and there's an interpretive lens through which you're supposed to view the story, okay? Apocalyptic literature is like that. Unfortunately, we are unfamiliar with apocalyptic literature, so when it starts, we act like a person who's never heard a fairy tale before 
who in the middle of the story says, well, okay, time out. How can, how can a little girl just all of a sudden become so small that she can go down? The, how, how, how does that, do you, do you get my point? If somebody doesn't know this is a fairy tale and they don't know the rules of a fairy tale and they try to listen to a fairy tale like they would listen to a news story, that's going to be incredibly confusing. And so that's the first problem that we have with the book of Revelation. We try to read the book of Revelation without understanding apocalyptic literature. And we try to read a symbolic book, literally. And we end up in trouble. Or we try to read it like an allegory. Right. And in an allegory, you know, everything has a corresponding part. So, you know, this that this means that and this means that and right. Everything in the allegory means something else. Okay, there's a difference between apocalyptic literature and allegory. And oftentimes we try to read Revelation as though it's an allegory, as though everything has to have a correspondence to something else. Second reason we find it hard to understand this book is because of its use of the Old Testament. Because of its use of the Old Testament. As one writer puts it, by one count, the 404 verses in Revelation divulge some 500 allusions to the Old Testament. John alludes to nearly every book in the Old Testament canon. Most of the references from Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. In addition, there are the five books of Moses, the historical books of Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. The wisdom literature, the prophets. Apart from Ruth, Ecclesiastes, and Haggai, John alludes to every book in the Old Testament. Every book except three. He alludes to in Revelation. Far and away more Old Testament references than any New Testament book. More than half of them are from Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now here's what's interesting. Not only are we unfamiliar with the Old Testament generally? I can't say amen, y'all say ouch, right? I mean, generally, we're unfamiliar with the Old Testament. Some Christians act like they are allergic to the Old Testament, right? So we're unfamiliar with the Old Testament. But if there are books in the Old Testament that we're less familiar with than others, they would be Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And those are the ones he refers to more than any others. So again, unfamiliar with the Old Testament, hard to understand this. Unfamiliar with the major prophets, hard to understand this. Daniel contains the most in proportion to its length, and most of it from chapter 7. In terms of actual number of references, Isaiah ranks first. Again, two books that we stay away from in the Old Testament because they are apocalyptic, and Old Testament, 
You, you beginning to see what I'm talking about here? There's a, another issue here. Apart from the type of literature and its use of the Old Testament, there are the symbols, the symbols with which we are unfamiliar. Okay. By the way, this is not just bad news. I want you to hear this. As I explain every one of these reasons that it's hard for us to understand the book, that none of this is insurmountable. So what I want you, what I want you to hear me saying is not, you can't understand Revelation. Here's why you can't understand Revelation. Don't try. What I want you to hear me saying is, here are some things that will help you to understand Revelation. Amen. We, 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 can, we can get there. Um, there are the symbols. The symbols with which we're unfamiliar. What kind of symbols? Colors. Colors um, are symbolic. Um, again, this is uh, whenever I talk about the, the colors. You know, we talk about the feet of Jesus being like burnished bronze. Right? And I, 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 um, there's a, there's a group, it's a, it's an Islamic cult called the nation of Islam. Um, also the black Hebrew Israelites, which is another, you know, popular cult now and the nation of Islam, black Hebrew Israelites, you, you guys need to understand something. Okay. Um, when, when, when y'all sold us off to the Europeans, <laughs> that's what happened I forgive you okay but that's what happened right Europeans weren't running around in the interior in Africa chasing us down and they know they just went to the ports and y'all brought us and sold us I'm not bitter but what's happened is a lot of people of African descent in the west real identity crisis and are always trying to find some way to feel better about their blackness right and so there are a lot of cults like the nation of islam like black hebrew israelites and, and essentially you know these descendants of slaves who who feel like outsiders because of you know their skin color i know it's hard for you to to imagine right i i can't tell you the first time i came here first time i came here I, I just I just stood around and I looked and, and my oldest son was with me and we stood around and we looked and both of us were thinking the same thing. It's black people everywhere. <laughs> this is crazy. I come from a country where black people are 12% of the population, right? There's so few black people that when we see each other, like in certain instances, I mean, you can see another black person over there across the street somewhere and you go, it's just not this, you know, there's some cities where there are concentrations, of, but there's some parts of the United States, man, where you, you won't see a black person for half an hour, right? And so we just stood there like, black people. <laughs> and so there are these cults that rise up and, you know, try to hold on to some aspect of black identity and say, no, 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 no. We're not marginalized. We're less than. We're actually more than. And so these cults, you know, the black Hebrew Israelites, we're the Israelites 
from the Old Testament. We are, we, we, us, we are their descendants, right? The nation of Islam, you know, same thing, you know, that, 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 that whole deal. And one of the things that they run to is Revelation. And they look at, here's Jesus, feet like burnished bronze. What white person you know would burnish bronze feet? <laughs> Jesus is black. Well, well, when you understand that bronze is a symbol of judgment, right? Uh, that's 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 step number one, right? It's a symbol of judgment. But step number two, who is that same text says that his eyes are like fire. So if burnished bronze means that his skin is black, then eyes like fire must mean his eyes are red. You, you you see the difficulty, right? When when you try to take certain aspects of it and say this is literal, when the text is obviously being symbolic, okay. So when we see colors, we need to keep that in mind. Animals, animals, right? Um, very very symbolic. When you see you know dragon and ox and okay. Lampstands, lampstands, another symbol. Spirits, uh, again, another place that's uh, another item that's used symbolically as well. The, the key is to look for the explanation of the symbols in the text. If it's not there, then don't go trying to conjure something up. Okay, we'll talk about that more. Beyond the symbols, there's also numbers. Numbers that are important. We'll just look at those, look at a few of those, right? The number three, the number three, the number for God. Um, again, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's also the number four, the counterfeit, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And on these numbers, you have to remember that the numbers are not usually given as numbers. Sometimes the numbers are given as numbers. Seven of these, ten of these, or whatever. But other times in the text, you will find, um, let, let's say, something repeated three times. Right? And you have to take that into account as well. Number four. The number four is the number four creation. The four angels on the four corners of the earth. Well, the earth doesn't have corners. Right? So if we're talking about four angels at the four corners of the earth, um, you know, again, some people argue, well, you, uh, these Christians, these Christians believe that the earth is flat. Um, no. These four angels and the four corners of the earth, it means the totality of the earth, right? Four winds, four living creatures. When you read in Revelation 5, 9, a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Why tribe, language, people, and nation? Remember I said that the numbers aren't always given as numbers. Sometimes like here, right? There's a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. The number four represents what? The earth. That means there's a people from the totality of the earth. Okay? 
Revelation 5.13, praise, honor, glory, and power. Praise from the whole earth. Revelation 6.8, sword, famine, disease, wild beast. Okay? This is a, 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 a judgment on the whole earth. Revelation 8.5 and 16.8, peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, earthquake. Right? Again, natural disaster on the whole earth. Revelation 9.21, murder, witchcraft, fornication, theft. Revelation 10.11, peoples, nations, languages, kings. Again, Revelation 18.22, musicians, flutes, trumpeters. So when we see something like that and where it's, where it's intentional that you see four of something, just think. That John is talking about something that is encompassing the whole world, the whole earth. The number of seven, the number seven is the number of completion. Number of completion in a theological sense. Seven churches, right? In those first three chapters, we see letters written to seven churches. Were, were there only seven churches? No, there weren't only seven churches. But these seven churches existed along a circular postal route, right? Seven churches along this circular postal route. This is a letter to all the churches, to the complete church, to the total church. Seven spirits. Seven spirits. Golden lamp, seven golden lampstands, seven stars, seven seals, seven horns. Seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven crowns, seven heads, seven plagues, seven bowls, seven hills, seven kings. Again, this is a number of completion. So it's ironic, you know, when we talk about, you know, the uh, uh, seven hills. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Rome. Rome is a city that was built on seven hills. That must be a reference to Rome. No, the number refers to completion. Okay. It's not an allegory. It's different than that. This is apocalyptic. 7,000 killed because of an earthquake. Does it mean that literally 7,000 people were killed because of the earthquake? No. It means that the destruction brought by the earthquake was complete. Seven Beatitudes. Chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 14, verse 15, chapter 16, verse 15, chapter 19, verse 9, chapter 20, verse 6, chapter 22, verse 7, and then again in verse 14. Seven Beatitudes. And again, remember, New Testament letters, and this is a New Testament letter. New Testament letters weren't treated the way we treat letters, right? We take a New Testament letter and we may spend six months or six years preaching through the letter, right? Uh, New Testament letters arrived and you treated it like a letter. You read the whole thing in one sitting. And when you read the whole thing in one sitting, there are a lot of these things that jump out at you that don't jump out at you otherwise. Okay? Like these seven Beatitudes. Number 10. The number 10 is also a number of completion. Okay? Okay? But instead of divine completion, it's just sort of numeric completion. For example, these 10 tribes. The number 12. 
The number 12 was the number of the people of God. Okay? The people of God in the Old Testament are represented by 12 tribes. The people in the, of God in the New Testament are represented by 12 disciples. So the number 12 is the number of the people of God. So there's a reference to 12 tribes. There's a reference to the 12 apostles. There's a reference to 12 stars above the woman's head. The New Jerusalem has 12 foundations on which are the names of the 12 apostles. The tree of life bears how many kinds of fruit? 12. By the way, the 24 elders around the throne, what is that? 12 plus 12. 12 Old Testament representatives, 12 New Testament representatives. Okay? So the total representatives of the people of God. The number of 144,000 our Jehovah's Witnesses friends, they love this 144,000. Literal, 100, 144,000, right? Um, 144,000, that's 12 times 12, times 10 times 10 times 10. So that's two 12s and three 10s. The number 12 means something, the number 10 means something, and the number 3 means something. It's also just a really huge number. So 144,000 people, 12 times 12 times 1,000. Now, again, we live in the era of, you know, trillion-dollar debts. So, so we're used to using giant numbers like that. But trust me, in the first century, 1,000 was a lot. Amen? It was a huge number. So 12 times 12 times 1,000, that, that's not literal. Numbers in Revelation are usually not literal unless it's obvious. So, again, 12 times 12 times 1,000. Especially when the 144,000 in, in chapter 7 are used right after the idea of a, a great multitude that no one could number. Right? You got a great multitude that no one can number, and then you got a number. Is that a contradiction? Or... Does 144,000 represent the same reality? Okay. All right. Approaches to the book. Approaches to the book. There are several approaches to the book. One is a preterist approach. Uh, literally that which has gone past. The, the, according to this view, everything recorded in Revelation was fulfilled in the first century at the time that John wrote the book. That's the preterist view. There's also a partial preterist view, um, recognizing that that's very problematic. But the preterist view is that these are things that happened in the past and only in the past. There's the historicist view. Uh, the apocalypse, according to the continuous historical approach, presents a concise outline of the church's development from the day of Pentecost to the consummation. Okay? So the historicist sees this as 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 a an outline of the history of the church. Um, so their question from a historicist would always be, where do you think we are right now? Right? If this is a map from beginning to end. Futurist view. Futurist view. It's a couple of futurist views. The most common futurist view is the dispensational view. But there's also a covenantal futurist view. 
the futurist approach um, is that most of the book, beginning in 4.1, belongs to the future. Proponents here stress the prophecies in the book that they say will be fulfilled before, during, and after Jesus' return to the earth. Okay? Their big question is, when will it begin? Um, problem is that all but the first three chapters of Revelation then become irrelevant to every generation of Christians except one. Okay. Then there's the idealist view. The idealist view interprets Revelation as a book of principles that contrast the victorious Christ and the people with the defeated Satan and his underlings. The apocalypse is not a history of events that have occurred in the past or a prophecy of events that will happen in the future. It is a book that fills God's people with comfort and motivation to endure to the end. Idealists stress the principles in the book so that its message is applicable to Christians in every generation. So their question would be, why should we have hope? The problem here is that it doesn't seem to take the prophecy literally or, ser or seriously. So the last view is sort of an eclectic or modified idealist view. Eclectic or modified idealist view. The same as the idealist, but with the added dimension of the depiction of the consummation of all things at the end of the age. Okay? Eschatological positions. Eschatological positions. The eschaton is the end of the age, right? Um, so there is the premillennial or futurist or historicist view. This view is that the, the, the millennium is ahead of us. The, the millennium is coming. Um, and that Christ is going to usher in this, this millennial reign and kingdom. There's an amillennial view. The amillennial view held by preterists and idealists. Listen to this again from Vern Poitras. If Revelation is clear, why do so many people have trouble with it? And why is it so controversial? We have trouble because we approach it from the wrong end. Suppose I start by asking, what do the bear's feet in Revelation 13 2 stand for? I'll start with a detail and ignore the big picture. I'm asking for trouble. God is at the center of Revelation. We must start with him and with the contrast between him and the satanic op opponents. If instead we try the right way to puzzle out the details, it is as if we try to use a knife by grasping it from the blade instead of the handle, or the wrong way, rather. We are starting at the wrong end. Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. Don't try to puzzle it out. Don't become preoccupied by isolated details. Rather become engrossed in the story. Praise the Lord, cheer for the saints, detest the beast, and long for final victory. Porthos writes from an amillennial perspective. Amillennial doesn't mean that there is no millennial reign of Christ. 
premillennialists are arguing for a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ somewhere in the future. The amillennial position is that the millennial reign of Christ is actually now. We are in the millennial reign of Christ now, right now. Um, the premillennial view has Christ coming, returning, um, defeating evil, having a thousand year reign, and then all of a sudden things pick up again at the end before this big final battle and all is done. The amillennial view is that from Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, he has been reigning and continues to reign in and through his bride, the church. This is the millennial reign of Christ. And when the end of the age comes, it will just be the end. Amen? It will just be the end. Um, there's also a post-millennial view. The post-millennial view um, is similar to the amillennial view. But the amillennial view argues that things will wax and wane, sometimes better, sometimes worse. Um, but they will wax and wane, and that will be the state of affairs. The post-millennial view is that things will get progressively better as the millennium is ushered in. Okay? What about an outline? Let me give you this. Let me give you an outline before we have some, some questions. Okay. And I, I, there are many different approaches to outlining this book. But, but a essentially what you have in Revelation is seven repetitions of a narrative. It's interesting, when you read Revelation, it's like all this terrible stuff happens, you come to a crescendo, and then boom, there's judgment, we're done, and then wait, here we go again. After a while, you're like, okay, what's left to destroy? Okay, but, but when you realize that this is seven cycles, again, the number of seven is the number of what? Completion, okay? All right, chapters one through three, introduction, letters to the seven churches, okay? While the recipients of these letters were real churches at the time John wrote, the number seven probably means that it was meant to represent the totality of the church. Okay? So, a series of visions follows. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, possibly seven thunders, which come between the trumpets and the bowls. Each series of seven seems to follow God's purpose to their historical consummation and the day of judgment. Each time you see this consummation in the day of judgment. Chapters four through five. So you have the first three chapters and you have chapters four and five. These chapters picture the throne of God, the scroll, the lion, lamb, who was able to open it, who affirms the sovereignty of Christ, which is the theme of the book. So four and five, you get that set up. Chapters 6 and 7, you have seven seals of judgment, which flow as a consequence of the opening of the book by the Lamb. Each seal represents 
issues and circumstances common to every age. No detail of particular wars or rulers are mentioned. Then from 8.2 to 11.19, so all the way 8 through 11, these chapters unfold the sounding of the trumpets, the last of which announces the coming of the kingdom of God and Christ, the last judgment and the opening of the temple of God. These parallel the judgments announced in the seven seals. Then chapters 12 through 14. This begins a new cycle of visions. Male child, the Christ, who is pursued by the dragon, the devil. It's the narrative of the great antithesis between the city of God and the cities of the world. The devil enlists in his help the two beasts. In the conflict, however, the elect are saved and the city of Babylon falls. In 14.8, God's enemies are overcome. Again, you see how there's consummation each time. Then chapters 15 and 16. Seven angels now appear with seven bowls. Again, you see these sevens, right? So each one of these is a picture of God's complete judgment. They contain judgment plagues. The last great earthquake in which the cities of this world and Babylon are destroyed. Then you have chapters 17 through 19. That's the destruction of Babylon, the beast, and the false prophet. Then you have chapters 20 through 22. God's dealing with the dragon and his final judgment in the lake of burning sulfur. The final city of God, the new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, in which eternal fellowship with God is enjoyed. So here's the question. What then do we take away from the book? If, if we don't, you know, take away the way to look, read the newspaper and look for, you know, who, who the Antichrist is. Here's what we take. Seven things. One, the glory of the triune God. The glory of the triune God. The book of Revelation is about the glory of the triune God. When you when you read it the way that I'm proposing, it is not only incredibly encouraging, but it's incredibly worshipful. This is a worshipful book. And it's ironic because we worship and glorify God because of his justice and judgment. Which is something that we're not we're not used to talking about, right? No, 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 we worship God, we glorify God because of his mercy, because of his grace, because of, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. But God's justice is praiseworthy. Secondly, the relevance and reliability of the whole Bible. The relevance and reliability of the whole Bible. Everything from Genesis to maps. It's relevant. Right? It's relevant, all of it. Third, the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. How, what better picture can you paint of sovereignty 
than telling someone what's going to happen in the end. The only way you can do that is if you're sovereign. Amen? I mean, as, as a father, you know, I've, I've learned that when I tell my children things, I've learned to be real careful and say things like, you know, Lord willing, right? Because my children may not remember to take a bath or to brush their teeth or to make their bed, but they will remember every promise I have ever made to them without fail. But daddy, you said, <laughs> and I have to remind them, yes, I did, but I'm not sovereign, which means that sometimes things can get in the way and prevent me from doing that, which I intend to do. God, however, is sovereign. So he can tell you exactly how this thing is going to end up and nothing can get in the way or thwart his plans. Four, the reality of suffering. The reality of suffering. Revelation makes it clear that suffering is real and that, and that believers suffer. The reality of suffering. Fifth, the inevitability and severity of God's judgment. The inevitability and severity of God's judgment. Not only will God eventually judge, but his judgment will be severe. Six, the certainty of Christ's return. The certainty of Christ's return. He's coming. He's coming, saints. It is certain because the sovereign God has told us so. And finally, the consummation of redemptive history. God is going to bring everything to a close and everything will be right and everything will be good and everything will be just. Again, from Kim Riddlebarger. The book of Revelation clearly reminds us that God is sovereign over all human history and that he will do as he said he will do. Turn human sin and suffering into good. Thus, the redemptive story takes us from creation to the fall, to redemption, to a new creation. God not only will save his people, he will save all of creation. That's not a book to be scared of. That's a book to rejoice in. Amen? All right. We have time for a few questions. Don't ask me who the Antichrist is. Back corner, back corner. 
what extent do millennial positions affect the church's effectiveness? To what extent do millennial positions affect the church's effectiveness? Um, they, they don't necessarily um, affect the church's effectiveness. Um, and I will say that because for the most part, millennial positions are treated as secondary, even tertiary um, in churches. Uh, there are very few churches whose, whose millennial position is something that's out there in the front. Um, having said that, of course, there are always going to be um, exceptions. And so there are always going to be churches um, who, who, who emphasize those things more um, and, who, um, and who are involved in certain things as opposed to other things. I'll give you an example. Um, from if you look at the dispensational premillennial approach as opposed to the amillennial or postmillennial approach, um, there can be a tendency toward uh, in the in the premillennial dispensational approach toward um, evangelism over culture building. Right? Why rearrange the the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. Everything's sinking, right? This world is doomed. Let's just go rescue people. Whereas if you have someone from an optimistic amillennial perspective or from a post-millennial perspective, they're saying, no, 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 we're building something. Uh, culture does matter, okay? Um, so, f so from that standpoint, um, you, you do see some distinctions. But that's not one necessarily being effective and another not, these guys may be more effective in one area because of their emphasis, whereas these guys are more effective in another area because of their emphasis. Right? Yes, sir. Hi, brother. Hey. <laughs> so, um, really appreciated the instruction. Excellent. Thank you. So, I've always held to an optimistic amillenarian position for the last 30 years. Yes. And um, there's been a resurgence among our Reformed Baptist brothers in the U.S. Yes. With reference to post-mail. Yes. Um, so, I'm willing to call myself an ah-post guy, but not a post-mill guy uh, full-on. Yeah. So, there's some things I, I like about it. Um, but there's some things I can't swallow. Yes. So I, I'm, I'm happy with an optimistic yes. position, but I'm wondering if you could speak to maybe why you think that guys like James White and others are, are, are moving to this post-mill position, if not embracing it altogether, yeah. and what we should think about this. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question, and, and I would put myself in that same camp. I've always called myself an optimistic, you know, uh, amillennial, holding to an optimistic amillennial position. And really, the differences are more technical, right? Um, and it comes down to that idea of the ebb and the flow versus progressive victory leading to, right? It, 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 it's that. And I think what some people find attractive, especially 
like right now in the U.S. context, is that a lot of the people who are doing a great job at culture building, a lot of people who are doing a great job at, at, at standing against the tide, right? A lot of people who are, who are building institutions, right? The, these are the post-mill guys, right? And it's sort of flowing out of their uh, post-millennial view. And so there are a lot of optimistic millennial guys who've been rubbing shoulders, you know, with the guys in Idaho, for example, you know, and, and kind of going, wow, they're really doing some transformational stuff. Um, and so I think it stems from that as opposed to, because it's, again, the theological differences there are, 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 are really small and, and, and technical. So I think it has more to do with um, relationships and preferences and, um, and, and inclinations toward certain practices. Because yeah. I do find that, you know, the optimistic amillennial camp is pretty small and not very vocal, but the post-mill camp is, you know, also small, but very vocal. So I find that, you know, most of the people that I'm interacting with, they're, you know, developing friendships with, um, they're from that perspective, you know. Also, you know, just to, to, to put another point on it, coming here to work with ACU, um, my dispensational premillennial friends don't understand establishing a university, a, a, a classical Christian liberal arts university. Bible college, yes, right? Because people are going to hell, start a Bible college, train preachers. Um, but why are you training people in agriculture and education and what you know, like? Why are you doing that? My post mill and optimistic ah mill friends, they go, yes, yes, right? Because because they they see the need, and I think is there's also a short sightedness because. You know, our, our, our dispensational friends who, you know, who, who poo-poo culture building, um, they, they only had the luxury of doing that because of people who went before them and built culture. Right. right? Um, the freest, most prosperous, um, most Christianized peoples and nations in the world um, are, are, are there as a result of this optimistic amillennial and postmillennial view that actually built cultures and built nations on biblical foundations. And the fruit of that has blessed the whole world. So. Yeah, my question has to do with uh, the numbers. Yes. The colors. Yes. Um, I've always been uncomfortable with all that. I wonder what's the, what's the basis, what's the authority that we use for those kinds of associations, or where do we go to get uh, the authority for that? You know. Yeah, yeah. and I, here's where I wish Dr. Daniel was with us. Um, you, know, um, so we had Dr. Kayumba here with us as well. But just like you know, a thousand years from now, when people study our culture, right, they're going to find literature that is fairy tale literature um, and they'll understand fairy tale literature because of finding fairy tale literature and seeing the similarities in fairy tale literature 
And that's what we do when it comes to biblical backgrounds, right? Um, this literature is not just limited to the Bible. These are, these are common forms of literature. Um, and so when you do literary analysis, when you do biblical backgrounds, when you do historical backgrounds, um, that you find that this is a this is a common form of literature. So put that people. Any chance that some of these are wrong? Any chance that some of what are wrong? Completion for its creation. Any chance that we, we may find some of those are wrong? Any any chance? There's always a chance that you can find something being wrong. Um, but these things are commonly used throughout the Old Testament. So. I mean, they're, they're there and they're common. Yeah. And also, when you read when you read the book, it's not just that you go, okay, um, this number is going to be a reference to that. If you if you just read the book and see the numbers, right, the way they're used, like when you hear tribe, kindred, tongue, nation, and you go, oh wait a minute, he's talking about the whole, and then you hear it again. Right, and he's talking about the whole earth, and then you hit this again, and he's talking about. So part of this is just reading the book carefully and seeing how the book uses the numbers, because it's consistent. Yes, back in the back. Thank you, Pastor, for the presentation. It was quite clear. Uh, I have a problem. I'm in between two Arminian and post-Arminian. It's very difficult. At times, the events that are happening, you think Arminian. And then at times, you know, I'm post. Because I don't know where we should <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. On the Baptists. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and as I said, there's very little difference between those positions. Those positions are kissing cousins, as we say in the South, in the U.S. But here's what I always tell people. I'm post-mill where I live. Right? In other words, I, I am an optimistic amillennialist, and I believe that things will sometimes be better and sometimes be worse. I don't believe that, that we're going to see this absolute progressive, right, victorious, right, uh, uh, march. I, I don't believe that. But I live like that where I am. Right? Uh, I, I'm an, and that's where the optimistic part comes from. Okay, um, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I believe we are currently in the millennial reign of Christ. He is ruling and reigning right now through His church, right? And and and, and wherever I live, my goal is to advance that. My desire is that that the King might have the fullness of the reward for which He died. So I I, I, I want to live in hope. Right, um, recognizing that I'll get knocked down sometimes. Right. Thank you. Just a question for following the millennium. We spoke about the numbers in the uh, book of what many, what what does it specify? A thousand? Is it correct to just rule for a thousand things and that's it? No. That again, according to the dispensational premillennial view, yes, it would be a literal thousand years. But rarely in the book of Revelation are numbers literal. 
And that number thousand, that, that the number a thousand is a reference to a very big number of people or a very long period of time. Not literal. Um, Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, speaks about the white horseman. Uh, there's a lot of uh, controversy on who the rider of the white horse is. Some people believe it's Christ, others believe it's the Antichrist, others believe it's a Roman emperor or Roman emperors. So I wanted to find out what your position is. I, I reject that view. Yeah. I reject I reject that I reject that view. How many horses are there? Huh? How many? Four. Four. What's four reference to? The totality of creation. God's judgment on all the earth. I don't ask questions like who's this, who's that? If the writer of Revelation wants me to know who somebody is, he'll tell me. Otherwise, it's a symbolic representation, right? So, when we see Christ in Revelation, there's no guessing. <laughs> there's, there's no guessing, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Fire in his eyes, a, th a sword on his thigh, right? Doof! wrecking stuff right <laughs> not lowly Jesus meek and mild with a lamb on his shoulders oh, he's a warrior king who's coming back to exact judgment right when 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 the when the writer of revelation wants to say this is Jesus nobody's sitting around going is this no we know yeah we know so I felt like my question was a bit more. So when I asked about effectiveness of the church and millennial positions, I was figuring more in the lines of evangelism. For example, when we look at the hyperbolic, how most of them are black. Because they believe the elect will be saved, whether we evangelize or we don't. Yeah, that's not eschatology. That has nothing to do with eschatology. I'm giving an example. Yeah. So, with regards to that example, coming back to the millennial position now, there are people who believe that Christ has reigned already and there is no need to evangelize. And then, as well, because the brain of Christ is having something more general effectiveness of the church in other areas. So that question is being asked from a dispensational perspective. Yes. Yes. So there's your answer. Right? Remember I said for the dispensationalist, they will define effectiveness one way, and you just defined effectiveness as a dispensationalist, right? And then you impugned another view based on your prejudice toward evangelism as opposed to culture building. Whereas my, my point was that just like people over here can say, no, evangelism is that 
area where we're supposed to be effective, period, full stop. And people over here will say culture building is that area where we're supposed to be effective, full stop. Both of them can point fingers at one another and say, well, look at how ineffective that other group is. Um, where they're both being effective in different areas, right? But if you're a dispensationalist, then absolutely you're going to look at Amil or post-mill people and say they're, they're ineffective. But what that, is, what that is, is that's you prejudicing them based on your presupposition of what effectiveness is based on your eschatological view. And the other thing is, in both instances, in both instances, there's there's straw manning, right? You know what straw manning is, right? You don't argue against the strongest form of your opponent's position. You create the weakest form of your opponent's position and argue against that, right? You build a straw man, right? And so the people who, who put emphasis on evangelism are looking at these people saying they don't do evangelism. Well, they do. They don't emphasize it the same way as you do. And the people over here are looking at these people say they don't do culture, but well, they do. Just they don't emphasize it the same way that, that you do, right? They put the emphasis on a different syllable, right? <laughs> Thank you very much, buddy. Uh, I'd like to know what's your position on eldership that's divided on eschatological being. Yeah. Someone holding to Pamil. Three, of course. Yeah. And they're all in the eldership. Uh, the church is also divided in that light. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know of a church that's unified on its eschatological view. Um, that, you know, you'll have people who will be, um, for example, it, we're talking about reform churches here. There are reform guys who are historic pre-mill, and there are, historic, there are guys who are amill, and there are guys who are post-mill. Um, but that's why our confession, the 1689, does not mark out an eschatological position. Just the basic sketch of the eschaton. Christ is going to return at the end of the age, consummation of all things. And I, I think the, the framers were wise in doing that because that's nothing to divide over. It's advisable for the sake of the unity of the church, even theologically, to insist on a view Absolutely not. that the church is going to... Absolutely not. To. Absolutely not. No. No, absolutely not. Yeah. All right. Our time is gone. Thank you. Well, we praise God for uh, the beautiful rivers. Uh, I know that uh, Liberation is a book uh, that is challenging to us as believers, but I think it's clear today that uh, since it's in the Bible and God wanted us to know beforehand, I think we should embrace it and indeed uh, preach it. We've come to the end of our morning sessions, and I would ask that um, we'll close uh, with a word of prayer uh, from Reverend uh, Nirenda. Reverend Nirenda, could you kindly uh, close for us?
Father, we thank you for the clear teaching on the book of Revelation, how you have shown us that things are happening according to your sovereign purpose. Mm. Blessed be your glorious name. In the name of your Son, whom you have revealed to us, we pray that you bless. Mm. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. You are free to go for lunch. But just remember that we are coming back again in the afternoon to do uh, another seminar and it will be on dating. So please feel free to come. Thank you. Ah, ah.